0: Welcome to the 15th annual Gokul International Symposium. I remember Mr. and Mrs. Gokul well. They embraced the world. They brought the world to us in a small community college. As I sat in Mr. Gokul's class, I thought, wow, wouldn't that be something to go to the places where he has been. They were wonderful in trying to encourage us all to look beyond the local scene. And when this became a four-year institution, Mr. Gokel came to Pittsburgh State where I was teaching. And he said, we have a chance to build something at Missouri Southern. I want you to be a part of it. And I can remember, for instance, the enthusiasm with which I embraced his invitation and how he shined, you know, as a guiding light and as a, a role model for me. And now I am like he, an older man, and I too have had a chance to see and travel the world. And a good part of it has been thankful to Mr. and Mrs. Gokul and their inspiration. I hope this carries over in the series of international symposia that we've had, the way in which the Gokul funds help to certainly, of course, sponsor the Model Arab League and certainly the Model United Nations and various other kinds of uh, scholarships and international work as far as this campus is concerned. This is why we dedicate, you know, this symposium in their name, the Gokul International Symposium, thanks to their wonderful gift, and certainly, of course, what that gift derives as far as Mr. Southern is concerned. So we open tonight, certainly with our, our view of Egypt, Egypt, one of the leading countries of the Arab world. I have been infatuated by people I've met in the Arab world and scholars that I've had a chance to engage with. One of the scholars is Dr. Mark Long, our first speaker tonight. I, I cannot tell you the cogency, the clarity, the analysis, and certainly what he brings to any meeting that I've seen him in and that I've participated in. I thought to myself, as I would listen to him, I've got to get to know this man. I've got to listen to him better. I think really, Mark and I will laugh at this, but I think really the time came, Mark, in the spring of 2003. Mark always puts together a wonderful team for the Model Arab League from Baylor University, Quality they always take the awards. Boy, they are really well-groomed and they are well, you know, well-principled as far as their research and knowledgeable. So we're around the advisor's table. This is in April, 2003. We have invaded the United States, Iraq. And the table's quite a buzz as far as the advisors are concerned about, you know, weapons of mass destruction. What the hell do I know? I'm from Missouri, you know. But I simply say there are no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. All of a sudden it gets quiet. And then there's the response. Well, how do you know that? You know, so forth. You know, all of a sudden I became sort of diminished. Until in the lull of the conversation from the other end of the table, another voice said, No, there are no weapons in Iraq. No no weapons of mass destruction. I looked up and it was Mark. That's when everybody stopped and listened. It was that pregnant pause, because Mark knows what he's talking about. He's been an advisor for many years, for instance, you know, to some of the higher officials as far as our government is concerned. And when he said that, and I locked eyes with him, I thought, ah. So in that pregnant moment, I think I said to the advisors, what about the Dallas Cowboys next year? (laughs) Boy, that changed the subject immediately, didn't it, (laughs) Mark? I cannot tell you with what joy and pleasure I... Introduce Dr. Mark Long. Uh, it is with this collegiality, and with every sense, for instance, of having been, you know, in, in his environment at times and watching him work and listening to him, that I, I I I take such great pride in presenting him to you tonight. And so let me invite, you know, to this podium for the first part of our symposium this evening, Dr. Mark Long from Baylor University.
1: Conrad, it was just a lucky guess, uh, but I was convinced uh, they weren't there. I-, I noticed something as I sat down in the front that you have a hookah in prominent display. That wouldn't happen at my university. Uh, I'm from Baylor University, which has uh, historical roots uh, among Southern Baptists, and uh, Waco itself is a town that has more Baptists than people, so it's <laughs> unlikely that something like that would happen. The only time that I know of that uh, a hookah has appeared on the Bay- uh, Baylor campus is when the Saudi ambassador's son brought him, so he a student at Baylor. I had him in two different classes, as a matter of fact. And uh, when we finished one of our classes, it was the end of the semester, he brought out his, uh, his hookah and set up uh, next to uh, Pat Neff, the administration building. As it turns out, Faisal's personal fortune is probably twice the size of Baylor's endowment, uh, so perhaps it was safe for him to do so, or no one else would. I really am honored uh, that I could come and speak tonight as a part of the Gokul Symposium. And as I read about the background of this couple who had such a vision for international studies, I thought I've encountered someone here who really embodies uh, Tennyson's uh, vision in the poem Ulysses, I cannot rest from travel. In fact, I think I read that they had a trip that extended one summer for over 50 days as they went trekking uh, uh, overseas, an impressive accomplishment, and I'm grateful for what they did to heritage that they've left and for the symposium that's named in their honor. I found out, uh, I might add, uh, who the other speaker would be, and uh, that gave me some moment of pause. I recall now almost a quarter of a century ago, while I was still on active duty in the Air Force, I was uh, studying for comprehensive exams for a master's degree at the Naval Postgraduate School. And in that moment of... um, Real focus. As Samuel Johnson said, Nothing so wonderfully concentrates the mind as the prospect of being hanged in a fortnight. And so here came the uh, comprehensive exams, and I found uh, an essay in a collected edition. Uh, the book was titled, uh, still is titled, they haven't changed it, uh, Ideology and Power in the Middle East. Uh, essays collected in honor of George Lynchowski, one of our great historians. And I found one particularly cogent essay. Uh, on the Persian Gulf, and it's one that I marked up and remarked and studied again and again so that I could go fully armed uh, into the uh, comprehensive exams. And the author of that uh, particular essay is sitting on the front row and will follow me. I'll have one other thing, and that is that I want you to know that uh, what you have experienced as a community here in these last several months has touched us as well. And I can say that my colleagues and I, our community, I have all thought about you many times, and I salute your courage. One of the most moving things I've seen lately happened to be a videotape, I think it was on CNN, of a young woman who was returning to high school, and she gave her story. What a powerful story it is. And I think in the midst of loss like that, it puts a place like Tahrir Square in Cairo, Egypt into a different focus. When we see people living on the edge and in the extremes, it speaks to us perhaps in a way that it would not have otherwise. And so I invite your attention for just a few minutes that I have uh, to go into Tahrir Square. I'd like to reflect tonight just in a very general way about the importance of Egypt uh, to the United States. Uh, Tomorrow morning, uh, I'll take a different tack, uh, something that's uh, focused in a very different way. I'd like to talk about Al-Qaeda. Uh, the way its narrative is constructed, and in particular how al-Qaeda has responded uh, in these months uh, since February to what's unfolding uh, in Tahrir. Uh, but tonight, some reflections about a place that has touched my life deeply. And it really comes uh, from a post that I made, the one and only post, to Facebook. So if I, if I may, let me, uh, let me draw on that. I, I tell my students at Baylor, uh, I've sent one text message uh, that seemed like enough. I've uh, made one post on Facebook. Maybe that will do it. But I don't frequently post to Facebook, and virtually never do I add political comments. Those whom I befriended in the social network reflect a range of opinions on everything from cuisine to the doctrine of the Trinity to don't ask, don't tell. Instead, I've taken Facebook as a venue to share some of the incidentals of life, and on occasion, some experiences that are common to us all, simply by virtue of being human. On some occasions, perhaps something more serious as I've done with the loss of a sibling and my dad here in the last two years. I've kept sacrosanct my personal boundary of no religion, no politics on Facebook until this last spring. A former student asked that I reflect on events in Egypt. And then I saw the following comment also posted to Facebook. I've copied that comment here. I will sound like an ugly American, But I'm going to be honest and anonymous. Why should I, as an American, give a hoot about Cairo? What is the nexus for me? Yes, it's a shame that they're not like us and don't have our privileges, but that's part of being a different country. Move if you don't like it. So I decided to ignore my self-imposed boundary. I first went to Cairo over two decades ago while serving as an Air Force area specialist. I've been back for stays of varying lengths many times over the years that followed. And I found, as others have, a country of extraordinary historical depth, heartbreaking poverty, extreme wealth, and a profound warmth. After traveling to all the Gulf states, as well as most of the others from Iraq to Morocco, I developed what I'll call Long's Law, that the hospitality of a nation's people in the Middle East tends to exist in inverse proportion to its gross domestic product. Egypt, with its impoverished millions, is exemplary in Ahlan Wasahlan. Medan Tahrir, Freedom Square, has been central to my experiences there. The old AUC campus, which some of you may have visited or perhaps attended, is only a block away, a place where I've attended lectures, visited with students, and drunk coffee. The American embassy just down the street, uh, whose clinic saved me from one of Egypt's modern plagues, Giardia Lamblia, is also close by. The Nile is a block to the west, and I've run along its corniche many times, dodging both buses that belch black exhaust and the metallic slush of ancient cars that seem to run on horn power. Of course, the salmon-colored Egyptian museum dominates the northern edge of Tahrir, a favorite place for anyone who's been there. What an embarrassment of riches you can find. 5,000 years of a stunning cultural heritage. In many ways, it is a metaphor for the country, crowded, dirty, overpowering for its numbers of objects, centered on the colossal statues of Amenhotep III and the royal consort, a pharaoh whose reign only slightly preceded that of the long-ruling Hosni Barbaric. And this last spring, something else was added to Tahrir. With millions of others, I watched with fascination as the crowds in the square grew day by day, Assembling peacefully and making their simple demand known that Mubarak must go. Of course, behind that straightforward message was another appeal, one for political enfranchisement and economic opportunity. By coincidence, the Tahrir crowds grew at the same time that my American history class and I were discussing the Stamp Act, committees of correspondence, tavern culture, and the First Continental Congress. The Cairo demonstrations continued through our review of 1776 and 1787. I continue to watch with deepening horror as our ally attempted to quash all communications, removed the police force, sent in the tanks, sacked a long, marabund, and sycophantic cabinet, temporized by offering to retire eight months later, and then sent in hired thugs on camels and horses to make peace pugilistic. So to Anonymous... Here's why I think we should give a hoot first. Egyptian, at over 80 million inhabitants, is the Arab world's largest country. What transpires there, especially something of this magnitude, will most certainly impact other countries in the region. String the beads and you'll find significant demonstrations have occurred, or revolutions, in seven Middle Eastern countries this year, all making the same appeal for political enfranchisement and economic opportunity. And in this count, I don't include Lebanon, in Israel, which have had demonstrations of another sort. Instability in a large swath of the world, especially the Middle East, has never been a desideratum of U.S. foreign policy. And now today, in late September, we may expect both demonstrations and violent confrontations to continue throughout the region. It is of paramount interest to us that the largest Arab nation not be in turmoil, but stable and prospering. Second, Egypt matters not simply because of size, but also because of location, both in a literal and a metaphorical sense. I'll let Gamal Abdel Nasser describe it, drawing on perhaps the best-known passage from his philosophy of the revolution. I really think it was ghost-written, but let's attribute it now to Nasser. He writes, The era of isolation is gone. It has become more imperative that every country look around itself to find its position and its environment and decide what it can do and what its vital sphere is. As I sit in my study and think quietly of the subject, I ask myself, what is Egypt's positive role in this troubled world, and what is the scene? As I survey, I find that we are in a group of circles, which should be the theater of our activity, and in which we try to move as much as we can. We cannot look stupidly at a map, Nasser continues, not realizing our place therein and the role determined to us Neither can we ignore that there is an Arab circle in which we're located. Nor can we ignore that there is a continent of Africa in which uh, fate has placed us. Neither can we ignore that there is a Muslim world with which we are tied by bonds, forged not only by religion, but by the facts of history. There is no doubt that the Arab circle is the most important and the most clearly connected with us. Its history merges with ours. I wonder how Nasser might revise that passage. A contemporary Egyptian writer concurs. Reflecting on the Arab Spring, he writes, we should not look at the conditions in Egypt through a narrow outlook, but from an outlook that comprehends the regional and international reality. Egypt, with its critical location, cannot be alienated from what goes on around it in the larger world. And he added, this particular analyst, only last week, that the second half of the Abbas, from the second half of the Abbasid state, Egypt was the heart of the Islamic world and its citadel of defense. Strong words. And the writer is Eman Zawahiri. With others in Al-Qaeda, the new maximum jihadist recognizes the centrality of his natal land, what unfolds throughout the region. And Zawahiri has underscored that in a series of communiques entitled, A Message of Hope and Glad Tidings to Our People in Egypt. He's followed it up now with two others, differently titled. thought about saying, well, I guess I will, uh, I'm reading Zawahiri so you don't have to. It's, uh, it's turgid stuff in many places. I recall a comment of Mark Twain, who once said of a book, it's so boring that it's chloroform in print. And uh, Zawahiri can be that way, uh, but we can't miss his message. I'll talk more about that tomorrow morning. The seven-part series, which Al-Sahab Media published between February and August, makes clear that Al-Qaeda regards Egypt as the grand prize in the struggles of the Arab Spring. Third, and extending from the first two, the US has the world's largest hydrocarbon appetite. According to the American Petroleum Institute, this last year, 2010, we imported some 54.4% of our oil needs. uh, presently, it's something like 48 or 49% of the softening economy. Still a, a lot of oil. The U.S. has sought to diversify its sources and now imports more oil from Canada than Saudi Arabia. It's a question I'd like to ask on quizzes with students. Where do we get most of our oil right now? But petroleum is a commodity, and the price of a barrel of oil fluctuates dramatically when any major source is threatened anywhere. We can import from Canada and drive past Valero to thumb our noses at Hugo Chavez, but it makes little difference with respect to pump prices. Spreading instability in the Middle East will impact oral markets. Moreover, again, inconveniently, much of the oil that goes from well to refinery to Toyota gas tanks flows through Egypt's Suez, one of the three crucial slocks, sea lines of communication in the region. In the dense world of international and interdependent petroleum economies, we must give a hoot about Cairo. Fourth, and a kind of sidebar. Ahmed, I'll give him a name here. Ahmed can't just leave Egypt as anonymous might wish. This last year, a colleague and I took a taxi to the Cairo airport. We were leaving for Amman, Jordan. Our driver had undergraduate and graduate degrees, was fluent in English, was remarkably well-informed but he could find no meaningful work. He isn't atypical, and anyone who visits there will find that story replayed many times. I recall his lament as we drove through Heliopolis en route. If only I could leave Egypt. He was willing to go anywhere better, especially Western Europe or America, but it's impossible for him to gain a visa. Those who keep up with Egypt will know of the scores who have drowned. Sounds something like our own Cuba and Miami those who have drowned in a small boat heading north over the Mediterranean. Our driver could probably get to Somalia or Mauritania, but his pension is for a place that offers political enfranchisement. How Egyptian, how human. Recall another instance, this, uh, when my wife went with me several years ago, her first trip into the Middle East. We'd flown into Paris and uh, changed planes there for the flight into Cairo. We got onto the plane, sat down, and we heard the most awful cry from further back in the plane. It was in, um, it was in Arabic. And a young man, we, I, I looked later, I had to see, began screaming, Nazaluni, let me down. Nazaluni, let me down. I won't try to imitate his voice. It was a scream of terror. And he would shout, no passport, person. Uh, it, Arabic doesn't have a, a P, so it was a B. No basbor, no basbor. This young man, perhaps mid-20s, shouted for at least an hour. I asked one of the flight attendants, what's going on with this fellow? I asked before we took off. He left Egypt. He was in France without a passport, and he desperately wanted to stay. He was surrounded by armed guards. What a picture. What a picture. No, Ahmed can't just leave Egypt. Fifth, there is the ongoing issue of the global war on terror. It hasn't been resolved with the death of Osama. As it turns out, Mubarak's allyship proved a two-edged sword and sometimes made things worse. As William Crystal wrote in the Weekly Standard, decades of, and he puts it in quotes, stability in the Middle East produced a wasteland of brutal authoritarianism, Islamic extremism, and corrosive anti-Americanism. I might say that, or want to say that. I'm surprised to find William Crystal say it, but there it is. He continues, some sophisticates rationalize that the status quo was better than any likely alternative, but the Arab winter is over. The men and women of the greater Middle East are no longer satisfied by having just a little life. And here's the truth. Repression in Arab countries makes converts to al-Qaeda's cause and those who read such stuff as al-Qaeda's noxious, reprehensible diatribes will recognize the countless times that has been borne out. But the late Osama bin Laden and his continuing company also have a not-so-secret fear. It isn't death. These are Indeed, the army whose men love death, drawing on Islamic history as they style themselves. Death is not their fear. Martyrdom is simply the ticket to what they want. What Al-Qaeda most fears is talk of human rights and democracy. So let's have a shout out here. Hey, Abu Yahya, Zawahiri, Anwar al-Laki, Mustafa al-Yazid. It's true, isn't it? You hate democracy. You hate all this rights talk. You hate to see young Egyptian women modestly dressed, wearing hijab, but holding placards aloft that call for an end to tyranny and an openness to democracy. Admit it. We read your mail. The possibility that tightens any jihadist chest in its sweaty vice is not his own demise, but others' compromise. That Muslims would embrace coexistence with other religious faiths, would advocate pluralism and tolerance and dialogue. Certainly not all do, but many do. The terror that stalks the jihadists by night and by day is that Muslims in the West and around the world and in Tahrir Square might find a way to reaffirm reaffirm both an Islamic identity and democratic values. Can it be done? I'm on tiptoe. Make no mistake, while we should be wary of the Muslim Brotherhood, for instance, It's hardly a monolithic organization prepared to make Egypt a terrorist paradise. William McCants argues in the current issue of Foreign Affairs that the brothers are more likely to work as Islamist parliamentarians. Of course, we can't be certain. We do wait with trepidation, but what's clear is that Al-Qaeda is concerned about what will unfold. Tahrir is not what they hoped for. To be sure, Egypt may not become the Egypt we like, but the Egypt that has been, at least with respect to its government, is one that the jihadist could love because it gained him recruits and helped validate his narrative. But if consistent and rigorous social science polling data are any guide, and here I think of Gallup, of Pew, of Zogby International, of Shibley, Telhami, at uh, University of Maryland and others, the Egyptians who are, are fully ready to embrace many of the fundamental rights that are cherished by Americans, include freedom of speech, which 97% in polling data say that they want to embrace but a final thought for Anonymous, and perhaps this won't persuade him. If we turn our backs on Tahrir, if we turn our backs on the very intellectual foundations of our own freedoms, when Jefferson spoke of self-evident truths, he didn't limit the unalienability of creator-endowed rights to British colonists living in Virginia and New York. They belonged to all men, he and his fellow co-signers believed. Of course, we had to overcome the learning disability called prejudice to realize that women and people of color have the same rights. We can't bracket out some. When it comes to fundamental rights, we can't bracket out Egypt. They're either human rights or they're not. If they are, then what matters, what happens there matters here. So let us stand with Jefferson. Let's stand with Lincoln. With his most fervent hope in 1863, the government of by and for the people will perish from the earth or from Tahrir Square. And let us pray that a taxi driver I met last year survives the tumult, gets to vote, and lives with his countrymen under a government that seeks the blessings of liberty for himself and for his Egyptian posterity. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Mark. What will happen after John Duke Anthony finishes speaking is that Mark and I will come back up to the stage, and we'll take the chairs, and we'll entertain some questions as we you know, wind up the evening. Then And so if you're thinking in terms of questions, we'll have a Q&A after Dr. Anthony finishes speaking. I will try to act as the moderator. And certainly we'd like to have input from you as far as any questions you might have about... Egypt or the greater Middle East and and the Arab world. And with that in mind, I owe Dr. Anthony a profound thanks. He brought me on board the National Council of U.S.-Arab Relations and made me a fellow. There are over 200 of us across the United States that are beholding to Dr. Anthony, and certainly I think he's traveled with all of us, some time, place, and some destination as far as the Arab world is, across the past 25 years. We were in Damascus one night, beautiful city, warm, the smell in the air, and John was a little bit nostalgia. He said, you know, I was just thinking the other day, 30 years ago, I was graduating from Georgetown and my friend and I, we were talking, where would we want to be in 30 years after we get out of Georgetown? What would we want to do? What were we going to make of our lives? And Duke Anthony said, you know, I'd like to put together an educational package representing the Arab countries which would bring the knowledge of the Arab world to American students, to American faculty, and make this a representative kind of, you know, uh, business in Washington, D.C. And John had realized his dream 30 years after graduating college, having set up, for instance, the National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations and having engaged hundreds of us across the United States, having started, for instance, the Model Arab League as far as universities and high schools were concerned, having developed programs internationally for students to travel abroad, and certainly engage the Arab world, study Arabic, learn about the marvelous history and the unique cultures as far as those peoples were concerned. He had made a real difference. He casually said, my other friend, or my friend, Wade, Steyer, and Ross had simply said, well, John, in 30 years, I'd like to be an ambassador, to, an ambassador in the Arab world. And that summer in 1991, starring Wade Ross had been named ambassador to Syria. I didn't say anything to John, but when I was that age, I was just hoping to God I could become a good high school teacher here in the Middle West. It was with fondness one morning I turned on 1994, I don't do this, the Today Show. And Brian Gumbel was saying, in a few minutes we're gonna have Dr. John Duke Anthony here talking about the peace process as far as the Palestinian and the Israelis are concerned. I know John Duke Anthony. and so I waited around and there came Dr. Anthony. And in his very concise and very you know poignant and very, very you know educated way, you know, enumerated the problems at that time, which are still the problems at this time, and certainly of course, you know, the peace process at that particular point. I can tell you, that it's been my pleasure to work across these 20 years with Dr. Anthony. I look forward to more, but if we never do anything else, John, the memories that you've given me and certainly how you've helped educate me here in the southwest corner of the state of Missouri will always be extremely meaningful as far as my career. Let me welcome to the stage my friend and mentor and certainly colleague, Dr. John Duke-Anthony.
2: Thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Conrad. One of the uh, pleasures and joys of life that one might uh, realistically and legitimately aspire to is to one day be introduced by Conrad Guevara. We are indeed friends. We are associates. We're colleagues. Uh, In some ways, we've tried to stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. We're not into the first-person singular business. We attribute what good fortunes have come our ways to those who went uh, before us and that is as it should be and as it is in a fair measure at this esteemed uh, university where your faculty uh, have preceded the students with their exposure with their experiences with their empirical education uh, on the ground in cultures and climes and countries uh, other than our own and that this uh, man and his wife the Gokuls, uh, bequeathed to this university uh, this kind of a, of a legacy, to expose people that might otherwise not have the opportunity, let alone even the, the means uh, to learn and be privileged to be exposed to uh, countries and cultures other than our own, and to see ourselves through the uh, eyes of, of others and the sobering lessons that being able to be empathetic, uh, to walk in the shoes or the moccasins of an- another Sioux Indian, before I pass judgment on that uh, Sioux Indian. Uh, This takes place at this university, and it takes place not by accident or by coincidence, but because enough good people have worked uh, here and elsewhere to to make it happen. Uh, Dr. Gubera has participated in our premier youth leadership development program, as has Mark Long at his university. We first met not where he is now, but previously, when he was at the air force academy in colorado springs which still participates in the same program to which conrad uh, gubera made reference and i'm happy to report to dr gubera that that 200 number of professors that uh, in the arts and sciences and humanities largely uh, that we have taken to the region is now 800 we have a professor and alumnus in 800 of america's uh, universities i'm not sure the exact number of american four-year in- institutions for higher education here varying uh, numbers of 2,800, 30, uh, 3,000, 3,200, but that we have someone in eight hundred of them is the result of people like doctor kubera and doctor long taking the initiative reading flyers and brochures that announce opportunities to have a study abroad uh, experience and then filling out the application sending them in and being chosen by national selection committees uh, to be parts of these participatory delegations and to come back to do what they really don't have to do. They're not being paid to come back and share their knowledge and understanding, their newfound information and insight, their firsthand experiences with uh, people from uh, other countries. They, they do it out of moral conviction of an ethical compulsion uh, to share with one's fellow human being who have, has been less uh, uh, opportunistically uh, provided uh, uh, cases where they could be fellows. So you have something here that's a gem, a jewel. Where I come from and the nation's uh, capital, some would refer to it as the belly of the beast, uh, there it's, in, it's a rarefied atmosphere. If one doesn't get out of the nation's capital, after a while, willy-nilly, we begin to believe our own speeches and press uh, communiques and, and releases. Uh, you are closer to the, the marrow of the bone of, of the real America in terms of humanistic needs and concerns and interests and rights and aspirations and objectives. And so it behooves all of us that try to work on Arab-U.S. relations and America's relations with any other peoples and parts of the world uh, to do what we can to be with and amongst you, to listen to you, to learn from you, as I have, and I've been here less than 24 hours, but have been looking forward uh, to this uh, experience for nearly 24 years uh, from the first time I met uh, Conrad Guevara and realized what a gift uh, he has been to the student body here and the university and may his tribe increase and may his years uh, be prolonged here at this uh, university to continue making these contributions. Coming after Mark Long is, is a formidable uh, intimidatory uh, experience. Uh, you could see the profundity of insight and the decades of of his learning and and wisdom and the way in which he's able to distill it and to share it and to break it down into uh, capsules and components that uh, go beyond the headlines and what passes for established thought or uh, informed opinion or so-called conventional wisdom here. We're we're in his debt for that as well. And I've been asked to sort of complement that or to add uh, things that may not have otherwise been touched on either in earlier presentations today or might uh, add to what he's had to say. Uh, the second aspect of it being intimidating is that I brought my wrong set of eyeglasses there, so I cannot even see my, my own little notes that I had made to add, but I'll strain and, and, and wince and, and try to do the best I can on that. And the third part is to come up with something new and different for those who may have uh, sat in earlier presentations today. But here goes in any case, and the focus is on Egypt and what makes Egypt prominent, significant, and worthy of our study and research and paying close attention to uh, over the years. Well, that's fantastic. He's profound in more ways than one. We'll see if they work. My gosh, they do. (laughs) That's fantastic. Thank you, Mark. Uh, uh, Among these aspects are um, things perhaps it would be the first time for some people to hear them, and it's because I've been privileged to know about them, uh, not all along, but when I first became aware of them, I thought, my goodness, uh, everybody should know this because they're implications in terms of some of the challenges and difficulties and opportunities that the United States is in because of something we did with Egypt or did to Egypt or did wrongly towards uh, Egypt or didn't do with Egypt. And we're paying the price for that in terms of consequences. Let me list them off and then we will uh, have the Q&A part, which to me will be the most interesting and rewarding. Throughout the Cold War, the Soviet Union was privileged in a beneficiary of intimate, strategic, close economic, political, commercial, and defense relations with significant numbers of the peoples in the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. And if one asks the question, is that because people in the Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world took a poll or did their own independent research and study and said, well, amongst all the competitors, people who can help us and who could hurt us, well, the one that we want to have our most intimate, trusting, and confidential relationship with is the Soviet Union. No, there was no such conclusion of the results uh, of, of extended study here. Uh, the real reason was the following, that after the revolution began in Egypt in 1952, we know That the egyptians know that we know that the egyptians know that we know that they know that we know that they came to us to signal that they would prefer that their most intimate relationship for modernizing and developing egypt from that point on having broken free of the long tutelage of the british and prior to that side by side with the british that of the french would be with the united states why do we know this we know this because various cables have been classified and this is long before Wikipedia uh, uh, there uh, came about with the cables that have reconfirmed this. But if you want to do your own independent research, there's an organization uh, uh, physically located with the Department of State's Foreign Service Institute in Arlington, Virginia, called the American Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training. And when I first had access to their oral history interviews, there were 600 of them, where retired officers. Would be interviewed by uh, someone in the Department of State, uh, looking in the rearview mirror, recalling things that weren't sufficiently well known in the United States or reported at the time, and implicitly, uh, implicitly looking for lessons learned, or if they could do their professional life over again, what they would do differently and by implications, uh, uh, better as such. Now there are around 1,600 of these. They've all been transcribed. They've been vetted by the government to take out the most sensitive classified information but they're there for all to read and as i read them over and over and over are the testimonies of our consular diplomatic and intelligence officials who were interviewed for this oral history project uh, that confirmed that not only did egypt come to us as saying that uh, we give you right of first refusal but so did syria and both of them were turned down not uh, by the u.s embassy and consular officials in damascus and cairo but rather in Washington, D.C., by the U.S. government being lobbied primarily by the Israeli lobby that came from the perspective that if America is going to be dating and courting in this particular region, we prefer that it have but one bride, and we are that uh, bride, self-anointed, self-appointed, and no others can have the privileged, cherished relationship with the United States that we have and intend to maintain and sustain, and we will fight to keep that. And so all others have to be fended off. It's perhaps the attitude that Hertz may have taken, or may still yet one day take, from a robust competition from Avis or National Budget Rent-A-Car in Alamo and Enterprise. Uh, and they've been able to prevail thus far. The point being here that two Shakespearean uh, phraseologies uh, apply. One is that hell hath no fury uh, like a woman scorned, or be rare beware the wrath of the rejected suitor the soviet union was the runner-up the soviet union was number two the soviet union was the default choice and indeed it it wasn't a love affair between either of the two but syria and egypt in particular and those who followed beyond them emulating syria's and egypt's behavior uh, to try to get the best deal that they could from the soviet union and so here there was a fork in the road between uh, the United States and Egypt and the United States and Syria. And so sort of like Yogi Berra once said, if you see a fork in the road, take it. Uh, in the case of, of this instance here, the, the road was, uh, was through Moscow. We paid a price. The peoples of the region paid a price. Certainly the Israelis and Palestinians paid a price uh, from my perspective. And I'm sharing my conclusions over a lifetime of research and, and my biases are showing here. Uh, But this is the background, this is the context, this is perspective that is largely missing from public and private accounts of how that came to be. And imagine or recall how many times we came close to having World War III because of events and incidents that uh, took place in that region. I think one of the last times that the hotline was used between Washington and Moscow was during the middle of the October 73 war. Uh, when the Israelis were still occupying the uh, Sinai Peninsula, the sovereignty of which was indisputably uh, Egyptian, but the Israelis had compromised it by invading and occupying it since June of 1967. And so this is another additional reason why Egypt has been important, is important, is likely to remain important. And during that last of the Arab-Israeli wars in October 73, this was also the last occasion for the Arab oil embargo of countries deemed to be uh, disproportionately and unjustly supportive of Israel's armed forces while Israel was in occupation of Arab lands, where there is no such thing as the opposite of that. It's the Israelis that occupy Arab lands in longest, uh, having been Egypt before the Camp David Accords, not the other way around in terms of, Arabs uh, occupying israeli lands this was also when the revolution in terms of oil price uh, structure and the role of oil producers and oil exporting countries uh, came into their oats so to speak and have held the uh, the lion's share of influence regarding production and pricing since then occasioning a revolution in terms of the industrial relations between the oil importing countries and the oil-exporting countries. Not that Egypt is a significant oil-exporting country, although it has been and remains an energy exporter to Israel, its next-door neighbor. But most importantly, as Dr. Long made reference to, it is this through the Suez Canal that so much of the hydrocarbon fuels that are imported in Europe flow from the Persian Gulf and the waters uh, uh, elsewhere in the Eastern Arab countries, the Middle East, and the Islamic world. So Egypt was part and parcel of that occasion when Egypt crossed the Suez Canal, which had been closed for eight years by the Israelis from June 67 uh, to October 73 and beyond. It took a while to be dredged and to be opened again to international maritime traffic. Uh, but Egypt was the catalyst that proved that to, to be the case. And something else that came through from these transcribed interviews, and when I read it, uh, I winced because I knew the, the source of the the interview of an individual who had been America's Consul General in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia, in the uh, winter and spring of of 1973. And the U.S. Embassy up until the late 1970s in Saudi Arabia was in Jeddah on the Red Sea, not in Riyadh. And so this individual had a conversation with the then new, uh, uh, being groomed uh, Saudi Arabian Minister of Foreign Affairs, who still is the Minister of Foreign Affairs, Saud al-Faisal, and so Odell Faisal had just returned from meeting uh, with uh, Egypt's uh, president, uh, Sadat, and he reported to the American consul General that what Sadat had told him was the following, that in his meetings with Henry Kissinger, he kept saying over and over and over, my people, our people cannot continue to pay the burden and the price of the Suez Canal uh, being shut. Not, neither can humanity as a whole dependent as humanity as as a whole is upon the Suez Canal continue to pay the price for this and the verbatim dialogue between the two is that uh, with regard to Kissinger he said well what are you going to do about it and the inference uh, from the foreign uh, minister of Saudi Arabia was that not unless the Arab side did something to break open this stalemate this diplomatic logjam would the United States be moved to do something it's an echo of something you've heard uh, in accounts of politicians who do not want to lead but want to be made or compelled or forced to do something that's in their own interest. You've heard in memoirs and diaries of leaders saying that they had this particular position but they were visited by this delegation that protested and demanded this that and the other and the politician said well now you've persuaded me now go out and make me do it. In other words, mobilize your constituents, put the pressure on us, lobby me so I'll have no choice and I'll have credibility when I announce that we've changed our policy. So this is a rather tawdry, uh, uh, unsavory aspect of the diplomatic record that I've had access to and you certainly can access to for which we're uh, paying a price uh, to this day. And it reflects negatively on our moral uh, postulation of our trying to persuade people to respect and abide by the rule of law when people throw it right back in our face and saying, well, why not practice what you preach uh, for starters here? Uh, you have been the most preachy in terms of saying that crime doesn't pay, but you've also italicized, neonized, and emphasized that crime does indeed pay. And you pay for a lot of it in the region, and you're continuing to pay for it and will continue to pay for it unless you deal with your own people in reality more honestly than you have. So this is just an early incidence of it. And what's happening at the United Nations in the coming days is the most recent up-to-date fast-forward example of it, Uh, where on the Arab side and the Palestinian side, they have, in essence, given up on the United States in terms of America's word, in terms of its trustworthiness, in terms of its not being followed up, and are taking the nonviolent approach by going to the United Nations and asking to be accepted as a member state, or if not fully a member state, then a a state with observer rights and voting rights uh, or or special rights more than the ones that they have at the present time. And the U.S. is opposing this as saying right out that we will veto it. And the Israelis are opposing this. They're the only two countries out of 212 countries in the world, 193 countries in the United Nations that are opposing this. So one might ask the question on the altar of what and uh, what is the advantage of the strategic advantage or the gain economic, political or otherwise, on the United States side to be siding with the interest of six million people at the eastern Mediterranean, uh, the Mediterranean, while humiliating and angering and provoking and antagonizing 1.6 billion uh, people as a result of domestic. Uh, politics and forces and factors and phenomena in the United States, so Egypt has been supportive of this as the headquarters of the League of Arab states from the end of two thousand and two march thirty first where King abdullah of Saudi Arabia, then Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, offered a peace proposal offering to have normalized diplomatic relations all twenty two arab countries with israel, if israel, what would, would but live up to its own obligations, its own sovereign commitments through the United Nations Charter, which right up front talks about the inadmissibility of the acquisition of territory by force, living up to the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949 for which the Israelis and the U.S. pushed and lobbied and advocated more strenuously and successfully than any other two countries on earth, which spells out that an occupying power cannot Uh, settle its people in the occupied people's territories, cannot expropriate the the, the natural resources or exploit the natural resources, the water of the occupied peoples cannot settle their own people in the occupied territories' uh, lands, cannot expel the occupied peoples from their lands. This has happened weekly and sometimes daily for weeks on end since June 1967 in the last great of the Arab-Israeli war, where Egypt lost the entire Sinai Peninsula, its oil and gas wells, as well as the Suez Canal. And so it's Egypt that has played a leadership role from the center and from the side in bringing about this consensus to try this last resort nonviolent approach to getting the basic dignity and rights of the Palestinians restored. It's not a question of delegitimizing uh, Israel's uh, stature in regional and world affairs. It's a question of leg- leg- legitimizing the rights of the Palestinians that have so long been denied. And the United States, of all great powers, has been in the forefront uh, for allowing uh, the, those rights to be uh, denied there. With regard to a few other aspects here on the demographic aspects, that one out of three of all Arabs in the world is a, is an Egyptian. There's a factor and a statistic to be taken seriously into account uh, with regard to the weight of the Egyptian people's influence beyond their borders. It's pretty much the case throughout all of Arab North Africa and still much of Arabia and the eastern part of the Mediterranean that in an entire generation of Arabs now in their sixties and seventies and early eighties were taught by Egyptians and the Egyptians, being as numerous as they are, were able to provide the early teachers in Algeria, Morocco, and Tunisia, and Libya, and, and Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, and Bahrain, and Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates, and Oman, and Yemen as well. So there's this ongoing overhang of Egypt's influence and impact in the region. And the more so because my wife, who's sitting here with us, was the desk officer for Egypt and the United States government when the Camp David Accords occurred. And when the Camp David Accords occurred in 1979, where Egypt, against all protestations to the contrary by Sadat, signed a separate peace treaty with Israel, while Israel was in illegal occupation of 1.5 million fellow uh, Arab Palestinian uh, Christians and Muslim men and, and women, uh, was expelled from the League of Arab States, 22 Arab countries in that organization, for which Egypt was the primary founder and the headquarters, and also expelled from the uh, organization of the Islamic Conference of 57 countries. For the better part of a decade, we Americans paid an enormous price by Egypt being thrown out of the two most important political and strategic organizations to which Arabs and Muslims uh, are are members uh, worldwide. My wife and I would go to the Egyptian National Day ceremonies at the Egyptian embassy for years And you'd look around in the room and you'd find maybe some Omanis, some Sudanese, some Somalis, some Moroccans, but no others. All others boycotted Egypt for the better part of a decade. And this was the same situation in the case of the Organization of the Islamic Conference. So Egypt had to work its way back into the good graces of the Arab countries and the Islamic countries. uh, countries. And it did so primarily during the Iran-Iraq War. From 1980 to August 18, 1988, Uh, Egypt, if you can believe it, sent a million Egyptians to Iraq uh, to replace Iraqis uh, who were soldiers to uh, be uh, with their families and continuing to be employed in the manufacturing jobs in Iraq. A rarity in the annals of military history where usually governments and heads of state have to choose between guns or butter and Egypt made it possible for Iraq to to choose both and Iraq was able to prevail in this war against a country that was three times its size nearly four times as as populous and one of the most assertive ambitious and aggressive countries that Iraq has ever had to encounter in its history but Egypt made a difference and by doing that it was reinvited into the League of Arab States but just in time it was reinvited in May of 1990 within 3 months Iraq invaded uh, Kuwait on August the 2nd, 1990. The very next day, Egypt was the headquarters for an emergency summit of the Arab world's leaders, and the vote was 12 to 9 to support the victim, the Kuwaitis, uh, against uh, the Iraqis who had invaded them. One week after that was an even more revolutionary League of Arab States resolution, whereby the vote again was 12 to 9, but that called for the mobilization and deployment of all Arab armies to Saudi Arabia, to uh, prevent the war from expanding further from Kuwait. Egypt was the venue in which that happened. Egypt was the country behind the scenes working in the shadows with its diplomatic prowess, getting the vote to be 12 to 9. We were the beneficiaries from that. So were the Kuwaitis. So were all of the countries in the Persian and Arabian Gulf. And you can argue by extension, so was the entire uh, world economy because of the Sixty percent of the world's known petroleum reserves being located there. And for whatever positions and views one may have about hydrocarbon fuels, they have been the key to a world standard of living since World War II and especially American standard of living in, in, in World War II. And we are indeed the world's largest users of this commodity, largest importers of it, largest wasters of it, loudest crybabies about it in terms of the price or the terms of arrangement by which we have access to it. And so when we talk about democratization in the region, people oftentimes come back at us and say, well, by democratization, you mean one person, one vote, don't you? And we said, yes, more or less, that's the same principle. And so the next question is, then why is it you uh, equate only 4.5% of the world's population, but yet every single day, every single hour, you take uh, 20%. Of this finite, depletable resource upon which all of humanity is dependent, how can you rationalize that? You're taking five times your share. Great Britain has taken three times its share. China is yet to take more than one eighth of its rightful share. If you look at it through those lenses, those prins, uh, uh, prisms, uh, with regard to democratic uh, principles here. If I can uh, close now, or move uh, towards the, uh, the 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 end of my remarks here and head towards the Q&A. Let me just touch briefly on what uh, are some of Egypt's more pronounced needs, some of its more pronounced concerns, some of its more pronounced interest, and some of its more pronounced objectives. Amongst its needs uh, is to increase its land. We're talking about 96 percent of Egypt's 85 million people living on only 4 percent of the land. Now think of it here in Missouri whether you're on the Missouri River or on the Mississippi River there. Suppose uh, all, 96% of America's nearly 310 million people were confined to the banks of one or the other of those two rivers. And at the furthest extremity from the banks of one t- uh, to the uh, desert beyond the banks, it would be around 60 miles how many of america's freedoms and rights and privileges and institutions and belief systems and uh, benefits uh, do you, does anyone think that we would have if that was a reality facing us would it be a result of a debate of a constitutional co- uh, convention uh, a, a reasoned argument a, a, a stimulated um, uh, back and forth no it would be the crushing reality uh, facing upon us we in terms of who we are and what we are and where we are and, and who we've been and are yet to become of the 212 countries I cannot think of more than five that are as privileged as we are of the 212. I'm talking about the fact that we're blessed with their mountains and valleys and green things and growing things and depletable and renewable resources. Only five other countries on the planet are thusly situated and being as beneficial as that. So imagine how we come off when we preach to those in Denmark, preach to those in Belgium, Preach to those in Luxembourg and elsewhere. All you have to do is get up off of your fanny and work hard and hustle, and you can be as good as we are and have everything that we have. Most of the lands and the resources and the privileges and the opportunities and most of the country's uh, uh, land rights and water rights and and other privileges and benefits have been spoken for and nailed down legally long before we even became a country. And so it's akin in a way to demanding of, of other people that they do something that, that they arguably cannot. It's almost like saying to someone who's in a wheelchair, look, goddammit, you're just lazy, get up and walk. It's, a, it's an act of will, you're faking it. You've just given up. Uh, it's, it's along those lines that when we become that preachy, that moralizing, that sermonizing, that we have this kind of reaction, especially also when we talk about the rule of law and accountability. Uh, We talk about this, that these are the only kinds of countries that we wish to have relations with. Well, in our Constitution, and it's taught here as elsewhere, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution says the following, that all international conventions, treaties, and laws to which the United States is a solemn signatory, uh, that these uh, will be the same as the supreme law of the land. And in more recent layperson's language, they would be superior to federally enacted legislation. Well, I pointed out that we are members of the United Nations by treaty and by the United States Congress giving its and consent, two-thirds vote in the Senate. The same thing uh, with the Fourth Geneva Convention of 1949. The same thing with regard to the laws, international laws against inhumane treatment and torture. Uh, how many people know anyone above the rank of captain Uh, who has been incarcerated and imprisoned because of the human rights abuses and excesses at Abu Ghraib and Bagram Air Force Base in Guantanamo. I'm hard-pressed to name one. And in terms of the uh, Fourth Geneva Convention and the UN Charter, by supporting the Israeli settlements, supporting the exploitation of Palestinian resources, supporting the ongoing occupation of the Palestinian people for some 63 years now and counting, and supporting the rights that uh, uh, Professor Long made right reference to in terms of Tunisians and and Egyptians struggling for their basic human dignity and their freedom, how can we do it in one case and not another? And is this not yet a train uh, wreck yet to occur in terms of the moral hypocrisy or the double standard uh, that uh, we are seen by, not by our own people so much, by those uh, who have become our adversaries who once were our friends. And why is Egypt in all of this? There were decades where Egypt was seen as uh, adversary, as enemy, primarily from the period of the late 1950s all the way through up until uh, the Camp David Accords. Since when, Egypt uh, has been seen as an ally, as a partner, as a strategic friend. It's amazing how fast one can go from being an adversary to a friend. But in both cases here, the definition was not America's national interest. It was not Egypt's national interest, but it was the national interest of a smaller country at the eastern end of the Mediterranean uh, that is extraordinarily well organized, influential, and effective in the U.S. domestic political system in making it costly for any elected leader or appointed leader to stand in front of any people in public and say uh, some of the things that I'm saying here, because of moral cowardice, if you want it, to put it that way, or in terms of just not having the conviction or the commitment of their convictions, or not having the moral uh, rectitude and spine, and thinking only in terms of being reelected, as though that this is a purpose in, in human existence and national life that overrides all other uh, considerations of justice and, and fairness. So, Egypt is thick and thin with regard to those particular issues, increasing the land from the four percent that people can live on to ten percent if they possibly could. Dr. Gubera is able to f- focus extensively and intensively on the Aswan Dam project that you'll be focusing on here in the nineteen fifties where there was a major uh, dam project that we were asked to lend assistance to that would increase the tillable acreage of e- uh, Egypt's fertile soil from four million uh, square uh, kilometers to six million, increasing it by a third. We largely opposed that. All 13 of the southern states, all 26 senators voted against that. It was the Soviet Union that drove its truck through that opportunity, that gaping hole of uh, opportunity that we provided them. And because we referred to uh, Egypt and other countries as adversaries, as enemies, Uh, We have Egypt to point to for another breakthrough in international relations. In 1955, the uh, Soviet Union gave the green light to Czechoslovakia to provide Egypt with armed forces equipment. This sort of leapt over this uh, iron curtain that uh, Winston Churchill in this state, by the way, in uh, March of 1946 had proclaimed that the Soviet Union had drawn across uh, eastern and, and central Europe and so we got the attention of everybody in Washington but that wasn't a one-off situation Egypt was on a roll and a run and responded to an African leader named Kwame Nkrumah from Ghana and Kwame Nkrumah said in essence we have an African proverb that when two elephants fight each other it is rare if ever that one defeats the other But what always happens is that the grass gets trampled underfoot. And we refuse to be the grass. And so the Ghanaians, along with Egypt, along with uh, Yugoslavia's Tito, along with India's Nehru, and along with uh, Indonesia's Sukarno, met in Indonesia and proclaimed the non-aligned movement. Do not make us choose between one or the other. There has to be a third way. They started with five. They increased their numbers to 140 It still existed, it has not yet run out of gas, but Egypt was present at the creation uh, for that. With regard to uh, Egypt's concerns, they're in a different geographic area than many might uh, sometimes think. They're far more rooted in Africa in some ways than they are in the Mediterranean or Arab North Africa or the Eastern Mediterranean. Why? Because the headwaters of the Nile begin not in Egypt, but. Uh, south of the Egypt in the African countries, inclusive of Uganda and uh, Ethiopia there. And so Egypt has, since time immemorial, had a nilometer person stationed upstream uh, to report as an early warning system downstream to Egypt as to whether there were going to be floods or there were going to be famine, or would be drought. So Egypt is vulnerable and exposed. Uh, to its jugular being uh, south of Egypt more so than many people are are aware there and this includes Libya to its west which has a clouded uncertain fate at the moment but Libya was led all of these years from September 1969 uh, now into its 42nd, 43rd year here by a leader who wanted nothing more than to emulate Egypt's leader Gamal Abdel Nasser and Gamal Abdel Nasser in his later years before he died was known sometimes to have put his arm around Gaddafi and said in essence cool it Muamma. there you remind me of the worst excesses of my youth uh, there so uh, Muamma didn't really uh, cool it but for a time he was a hot dog there that people forget for example the following uh, the fact that Arabic is one of the five uh, accepted universally Uh, uh, authorized languages in the United Nations as a result of Qaddafi. Qaddafi led the campaign to say that, look, all people coming to Libya from other countries must fill out their visa application form in our language, just as all of us who are going to the United States are forced to fill out the visa application in English. This is only mutually beneficial. This is only reciprocally rewarding and respectful. And so people rallied behind Gaddafi, and this is how that occurred there. The prime minister of Malta uh, saluted Gaddafi for saying, no one helped us more than uh, Gaddafi except for the Chinese and getting the the base structure for NATO and the British to stop using Malta as a resupply uh, base uh, for the Israelis during the Arab-Israeli wars. Thirdly, it was Gaddafi that went to sub-Saharan Africa in 1971 and got six African sub-Saharan countries to break relations with, uh, with Israel over the issue of Israel occupying by force the lands of the Palestinians as well as, as the Syrians there. And fourthly, the organization of Arab Petroleum Exporting Countries, which is different than the organization of, uh, of Petroleum Exporting Countries. The, the latter one is the bigger one based in Vienna. The former one is the smaller one, only of Arab countries based in Kuwait. It was led from the beginning for, for years uh, by a Libyan. But those are the Qaddafi's of the old days who ran out of gas and became something quite different in Enfant Tareb in the last sort of quarter century. And lastly, with regard to Egypt's objectives there, it's looking in the mirror view mirror and also through the side view mirror in the front windshield with a bit of wist and tears in some Egyptian eyes who remember the past and the not so distant past as that where Egypt was indeed front and center was the leader of the Arab world and not just because of one out of three of all Arabs being an Egyptian but by sheer competence and effectiveness and educational and skill and attainment and that diplomatic competency is second to none in, in the Arab world as a whole when you find them in the United Nations, the World Bank, the IMF, the League of Arab States and elsewhere so they want to restore their position to where they can lead and punch at least at the level of their weight. They also want to restore their position as a leader of the less developed countries of the world, which Egypt has been and is and is likely for some time yet to remain. And it wants to play a role in Africa that's commensurate with the size and the fact that some eight African countries are one and the same time Arab countries. And it wants to continue to play the role that it at various times has played so effectively between East and West. After the invasion of Kuwait was reversed and the aggression by Iraq uh, was reversed, uh, Egypt uh, played a a leading role in four consecutive years of economic summits between Israelis and Arabs, starting in Morocco, then also in Jordan, also in Cairo, and also in Qatar. So it's played these additional roles to those that um, Mark Long so articulately shared with us this evening And you couldn't have chosen a more timely, relevant uh, country in need of much better understanding and knowledge uh, than most Americans have to this date. And I uh, salute and applaud and commend all of you for having chosen Egypt. We'll be the better as a result. Thank you.
0: Let me thank you for uh, staying, and we'll occupy perhaps another 15 or 20 minutes as far as your time is concerned. I hope you have some, uh, some energized and, and, and poignant questions. Uh, let me tell you that we, we certainly owe Dr. Anthony you know, a, a, bit of, a bit of a claim. How long ago did you have your surgery, six weeks?
2: Uh, July the 21st.
0: July the 21st. Uh, yeah. It's major back surgery as far as, um, well, you know the difficulty as far as final surgery is concerned. He would have had every opportunity to default that he made every effort to be here. And one of the things we have to do for Dr. Anthony while he's here is to make sure that he gets to see Joe Becker Stadium. He's always been intrigued by Mickey Mantle moving from Joplin, Missouri to New York City in the first season of baseball. And as a result, he wants to see Joe Becker Stadium to see where it all started, with Mickey Mantle. I, I saw it this afternoon. I oh, did. did you know? Did. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so then we've got that much taken care sure. of. So, first of all, uh, do you yeah. have? Let's let's start with you. Question, question number one. Number one here, Mr. Jarus.
1: Like uh, Dr. Anthony said, uh, just the sheer numbers of Egyptians, the kind of educational system that they've had, the places that they've gone and worked, but it's much more than that. Uh, there is a sense of civilization uh, that is obtained in Egypt that was reflected actually by Saddam Hussein uh, during the First Gulf War that Dr. Anthony mentioned 1990 and 1991. Uh, Saddam, declaiming against the other Arab states, uh, said that these are just uh, paper statelets. He had n- no real love, of course, for the, uh, for the Gulf. But he pointed to Iraq and to Egypt as being the countries of civilizational depth, knowing that would have a coinage for other Arabs. Um, if, you, if you travel in the Middle East and you speak Egyptian dialect, you have a good chance of being understood in other places. It's not so if you happen to speak in a Moroccan dialect, or you've been to Qatar and try to use that dialect. The Egyptian dialect is broadly understood. It is, moreover, the center of their entertainment industry. Uh, the... Uh, the films that I've seen, I've considered garish, but um, every country in the region will know Egyptian media production. If you listen uh, to, uh, to the news in, uh, on the <coughs> radio or watch a television broadcast, whether it's Al Jazeera or BBC or some other uh, venue like that, you will hear Egyptian accents uh, consistently. They can't mm-hmm. get away from the game. So instead of Jamal Abul Nasser, it's Gamal Abul Nasser. And you just begin to pick up little cues like that. Uh, There is a sense that there is a rich cultural heritage that other Arab states will recognize with respect to Egypt.
2: Can I add a footnote to that? Um, It's a great question because uh, Egyptians, unlike Lebanese and Syrians, have not traditionally been uh, immigrants there. The, The pull of the Nile from time immemorial of waking up in the morning to it and as the sun goes down at the end of the day, the emotional tug on one's heartstrings and knowing that one's ancestors, uh, that one couldn't even count how many, uh, had the same lifelong experience. So Egypt is a policeman's dream in the sense of everybody lives in 4% of the land, quite different than the United States and Iraq and Iran and elsewhere. But the breaking of the dam of the Egyptians beginning to immigrate by purpose in significant numbers occurred after 1962. At that time, Gamal Abdel Nasser proclaimed the socialism decrees in Egypt, where the big landed estates were broken up and big factories, uh, the equity was taken more than it was rewarded fairly by the Egyptian government. And so the Egypt's middle class and its private sector in the tens of hundreds of thousands left, many of them were of mixed ancestry, uh, uh, Italian Egyptians, Greek Egyptians, Lebanese Egyptians. Um, And so that stands out against the Lebanese and the Syrians. It is not yet the case as it is with France and with Germany and Italy. Uh, in Greece, where there are more Greeks, uh, Germans, Italians, and French outside of those countries than inside the country, it's tilted in that direction, in part because of the economic need, in part because the land is so, so limited. But it is far more recent than people might imagine. I doubt very many of you have met swarms of Egyptians. I could be wrong. I would think you've met more Lebanese and Syrians from that part of the world than you've met uh, Egyptians. Certainly, it's been my experience, and that of many others as well. But the point about Egypt's e- Egyptians excelling in international organization—that that's self-evident.
0: I do know, of course, from my experience in the Middle East, that um, you'll see a lot of Egyptians, uh, Mr. Jaris, uh, being part of the labor force of other Arab mm-hmm. countries, and uh, they're <coughs> out there many times early in the morning to be picked up as day laborers, and uh, as we have people from Mexico come to our area here and send money home, Mm -hmm. many of the Egyptian lads who work in the oil fields of Saudi Arabia or certainly uh, in in, in Mm Kuwait, certainly send money home on smaller wages. Egypt is a leading country as far as cinema throughout Mm -hmm. the Arab world. I think it may be the third or fourth leading country in the production of films Mm -hmm. as far as the world itself is concerned. And one last thought, we use a particular textbook in the Egyptian class this this semester, at least I referred to it, by James Henry Brassett called The History of Egypt. It was written in 1905, and he said, quite casually in this, he says, Egypt has now 10 million people along the Nile. (laughs) Now they have 80 million people living on the Nile. I'll leave it up to you to think in terms of the thousands of people per square mile, the density that they have, and we expect democratic institutions to work well in that kind of a density. We all know that that takes some kind of doing. So... Please, other questions? Sir? Um, Egypt was, back in the spring, Egypt was kind of the birth of what's called the Arab Spring, and
3: the Middle East is at somewhat of an unrest right now with
0: Libya, especially right now, and other countries following in suit. So, where do you foresee
3: this going, whether it's going to settle down real soon, or is this going to kind of cascade on other countries?
2: revolutions and so on and so forth. Mark, if you have
1: uh, With respect to Egypt itself, I don't uh, expect a quick resolution. Uh, dates have been uh, set for the elections. Uh, the lower house elections are set for the 21st of November. And, and just uh, kind of an interesting side note there, I started a, a kind of uh, informal project last year, a year with Al Jazeera. I've been looking at the polls, that Al Jazeera Arabic runs, and have done that every week for this last year. And uh, the poll that happened to run in November of last year um, was, do you expect that free and fair elections can be held in Egypt? And fewer than 5% said yes. And and so what's come has been uh, quite remarkable, but I, I don't expect it to move quickly in Egypt. Uh, so the first inductions, unless they're postponed, will be on the 21st of November the upper house which has less authority will see elections in uh, the time frame of january to march mm-hmm. uh, then the presidential elections would follow that but there's also to be uh, a kind of constitutional convention in concert with that mm-hmm. i expect that to move very slowly uh, the military itself is not going to quickly give up power uh, they'll be watching over the shoulders of the brotherhood certainly and and the kinds of privileges that they have are extraordinary they range from everything from the uh, as an Egyptian academic just wrote me uh, last week, it ranges from everything from the penthouses along the Nile to control of the olive oil business. And if you've been in the Middle East, you know that uh, olives are standard fare for every meal that you eat. Uh, they control the pesticide industry. Uh, kind of odd, but so they do. Um, the military won't quickly give up its power, and I expect that transition to be slow, um, but there is a kind of motive force behind it as I've listened to Egyptian forces' uh, voices and tried to listen to the news. I see this push, and particularly from uh, younger Egyptians. There's an expression I heard uh, just this, this summer. Um, I was on one of the Malone trips that Dr. Gabera mentioned. Uh, so my thanks, sir, for the for third Malone trip. We were in Morocco, and I visited with the uh, U.S. Embassy there and the embassy officer made a reference to what others were saying in country, and that is, changes in the Middle East are being pushed along by the facebook taking the word and made an Arabic plural out of it. Hmm. And while there is, say, in the the Brotherhood, uh, older conservatives who are unlikely to move very quickly, there is a youth push and the largest demographic in Egypt is uh, an age range from maybe 18 up to 25, and they're pushing it along. As I said earlier, I've sent no Twitters. I've sent one uh, text message. Uh, those who are texting and using Facebook regularly will push that. Will it spread to other countries? Uh, it has spread. Um, and As I think across the region, um, uh, Morocco has stayed one step ahead, uh, King Mohammed VI, uh has been very attuned to what's going on in the rest of the world, um, and it, uh, if there's if there's a country that we could point to right now and say it looks like there could be a positive outcome in the near term, I, I think it's uh, I think it's Morocco. Uh, similarly, perhaps for Tunisia, uh, Jordan uh, seems to me at times to be on the edge, uh, but uh, its monarch and its queen have been very attuned. Uh, to uh, to a younger generation and this kind of youth bulge that's coming along. Uh, the present queen, for instance, did something on YouTube uh, last year in which she did a series of presentations and engaged uh, issues that ordinarily wouldn't be engaged in the country. They were very smart the way they handled that. Mm-hmm. Um, big question mark, and I'd like to hear Dr. Uh, Anthony yeah. comment on this, is Bahrain. I,
2: I, I don't disagree at all with the substance of um, Dr. Long's remarks. My perspective or angle of repose in viewing it, uh, pondering the implications of what you ask, uh, is different. Um, I'm a congenitally an optimist. Um, I don't cotton very much to the alternative, so it's by design that I'm that way in terms of how I use my human energies. But in the short run or even for the foreseeable future, I don't see the grounds for optimism or the optimism that goes along with the effusiveness and the enthusiasm and the joy that you saw in Tahrir Square and Tunisia and Egypt. And why? It's because of the following. I just don't see it within the wherewithal of any government or any national leadership to deal with the core economic problems of employment and jobs. Look at the massive difficulty we're having with the figures 10%. In Algeria, it's, it's averaged 40% uh, since independence, since 1962. In Egypt, 40% uh, below the poverty level, uh, $2 a day are the figures I read more than any others. No government can make its private sector hire somebody if the private sector says, no, we're, we're not in business for a charitable, humanitarian, altruistic cause. We're in business to make money. And you you can't make us do this, and that would be a revolt if you tried to make them do that. So I don't see it happening in the short run. My figures are perhaps dated here, uh, but the last set of figures on uh, the number of Egyptian high school graduates entering into the so-called availability for the workforce was something minimum 500,000 a year. And this is not, uh, and the uh, university graduates are having even greater difficulty being hired. How can you find 500,000 jobs a year uh, for any people in, in any country? It just cannot be done. And we're finding how difficult it is when we just have 10 percent unemployment in a country with the bountiful blessings and resources that we have. And if we can't have it, on the altar, what should we be optimistic that others who have so much less and the problems are so much more are likely to do it where we cannot? I don't see it in the short run. Um, and therefore uh, what is one to do with that Um, if you can't resolve something uh, because it's too hard then perhaps a plan B is might we ameliorate some of its crueler more inhumane manifestations and if the answer to that is well yes or maybe or something well then that represents progress of some kind but if it's equally dire and people say no we don't see any way to ameliorate it well, then maybe you can back up and say well maybe we can manage it better and that would be seen as progress and then if so some say well we can't even manage it and the reason is what is it information is it knowledge is it understanding is it leadership is it tax policy is it this that or the other is it all of the above as long as people are trying to work at it and make make it uh, less onerous uh, there's a, a chance but when you surrender when you give up when you when you say I can't do it. Uh, then you really have failed. That's self-fulfilling prophecy right there. I don't see this as a challenge in the eastern oil-producing countries of Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar. Uh, the uh, I, I said Bahrain didn't mean to say Bahrain. Uh, Qatar, the UAE, and Oman. I see it as equally onerous in Yemen, and in Bahrain, I see it as as, as differently structured. There, it's not the economic problem alone or mainly. There's money in Bahrain, a lot of it, but it's a sectarian issue there. And whereas before the U.S. invaded and toppled the regime in Iraq, 60% of the Iraqi people were Shi'i Muslims, but not in the government. In Bahrain, the number is closer to 70%. That's not in government. And that figure has been there for a very, very long time. And there's no question that they're discriminated against. And wrongful discrimination in any culture, any morale milieu is, is uh, polarizing and provocative and antagonizing. Uh, if any of us were wrongfully discriminated against, I have no doubt that we would not take it uh, uh, lightly or easily. And the Bahrainis have known that they're in the majority since the early 1950s when they took their first census and on the census was a question, are you Sunni or Shia? They've not asked that question on any censuses since. Because even then they were in the plurality and looked around and said, we don't have a single lawyer, not one doctor, not one surgeon, not one elementary school principal. We have no one working in the ports, no one working in civil aviation, no one working in naturalization or immigration, no one working in intelligence. And they took to the streets. And so the fundamental reality hasn't been significantly altered from then till now. Uh, so that one is different than all of the others. Each one really is different, as uh, Dr. Long was implying. Uh, think of them like, like fingerprints and snowflakes. No two are the same. Each is different. Come Larissa, please. Yeah,
0: Loretta, please.
1: Yeah, do. I hope it doesn't. And uh, this, the examples that you cited are excellent because it didn't play well in the Arab world. Uh, our treatment of Saddam uh, when he was captured, uh, at least the, the uh, pictures that were allowed to be promulgated, uh, within that context, were extremely humiliating.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, you know I can we could go through country by country and list those who had no great love for Saddam. But what they saw happening, uh, I think, worked against our interest. In fact, I'm certain that it did, because that, that's what Arabs said. Um, thinking, in fact, of the Gulf War, it was critical that we deploy the troops. But um, the government of Saudi Arabia, as well as their own government, insisted that those troops would stay only as long as necessary. Uh, we stayed uh, longer than we indicated that we would. And to see the Arab press at the time is to see an Arab nation, and here I'll use it in the singular, whose pride was wounded. And I recall the comment of one Saudi who responded to that, who said uh, something like this, uh, the days when uh, we're slapped on the right cheek and turned the left pocket to pull out the pocketbook are long since past. Uh, another Saudi that I read uh, commented at the time um, do you think uh, that this was shameful for us as a society that we had to call the West? And he said it certainly was, because it posed us, this is his terminology, as a group of women who could not defend themselves. Mm. In a shame-honor culture, it was critically important that we do the good things that we did. For instance, we had press briefings during the Gulf War uh, with Saudi generals as well as uh, General Schwarzkopf the Bear. Uh, And that played well in the Arab world. That we let them give their account, say, of the Battle of Kafji played well. But there were other things that we did that I think worked against our interest. And certainly when Saddam was captured and shown on national television as he was, uh, we were working against uh, the rubric of a shame honor culture. Mm -hmm. And it's no accident that in the press briefing that uh, President Bush had um, uh, before he uh, left the White House, he was in Baghdad. I'm sure you saw the pictures. And a young journalist took off his shoes Mm -hmm. and threw them at him. Mm
2: -hmm. The um, question that you asked is an excellent one. Um, The insight into it, though, is heavily anchored anchored in antiquity uh, in notions of justice. The phrase of justice not only must be swift and seen to be just, but it also must be seen and so the tradition of delivering the head of someone whose head had been severed to the successor was seen as closure. Uh, We're going on to future things, so it goes back uh, very deep. But it is linked also to questions of basic human dignity and um, self-respect and the avoidance of humiliation. And here is a value difference. There is censorship in every media i've ever known ours included most of itself censorship but throughout the arab world and much of the islamic world you find a different self-imposed censorship and that is to criticize the policies the positions the actions and the attitudes of given ministries or given bureaucracies departments agencies but to leave out the name of the individual Uh, Because that individual has daughters and sons and wives and husbands and and a shame on a culture. Why visit the excesses or the deficiencies of one principal on the kin who have nothing whatsoever to do with that? Spare them the indignities there. Because at the end of the day, it's the policies and the positions that you're seeking to criticize and change, not Henry Jones or Martha Smith as such. So we, we call that censorship, and it is censorship, but it's driven by uh, a rather not dishonorable principle there. Be, be, be fair to the children. Uh, do not abuse the, the kin who, who are the innocent.
1: i think follow that up with one more thing. Mm-hmm. Thinking about, as uh, Dr. Anthony mentioned, uh, Abu Ghraib. Mm. And the kinds of humiliation that took place there, once again, worked against our interest. But what intrigues me is that uh, if something like that had happened in an American context, we'd look for an attorney, we'd want to sue. But in fact, many of the Iraqis who were there and whose pictures were taken stated that they had to leave the country, that they had been publicly shamed. We'd look at it and say, you were wronged. But the way they looked at it was that they had been shamed and they needed to leave. In fact, there was a very uh, um, gripping picture that I saw uh, posted. It was from Al-Manar Television in Lebanon. And it showed uh, the picture of an Iraqi who was standing. His head was covered, but he was standing on a small platform. Um, He was wired up for electric shocks, and his arms were outstretched. And the caption for it was, The Passion of the Iraqis.
0: And Larissa, we can take it to one more level. Across
2: family has excommunicated him from being... Less the office than the behavior. It's the behavior over which one argumentatively has control to a greater degree than most would acknowledge. And indeed, um, one of the uh, duties of a Muslim comes from the word jihad. And most Americans find that a blood-curdling concept and word. In most uh, uh, editors cannot resist after they write it J-I-H-A-D putting parentheses holy war okay Uh, the root comes from to exert uh, to hustle to be as energetic as you can in pursuit of a righteous cause and so the ones who resisted the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan were called the Mujahideen those who resisted France's occupation of Algeria were called the Mujahideen and we glorified both the Algerian Mujahideen and the Afghan ones there but we have short memories there because all of a sudden that word has taken on a pejorative connotation but in Riyadh uh, you'll find signs calling uh, a jihad on tobacco a jihad on unsanitary conditions um, we had a war on poverty ourselves And the greatest jihad is an internal one within one's own spiritual self and heart and head to try to decide, should I succumb to this temptation or should I allow myself to be seduced by the continuity of comfort? Uh, Realizing that if one is pious, by doing so, would I be pleasing the Almighty or provoking the Almighty? And so the choice comes down to the individual making that choice. So jihad has a completely different uh, connotation than it does in the Western usage of it. There is the war aspect of it. And when a war is seen as unjust, then it is just to resist the war. And this is also at stake in the U.N. vote coming up, uh, because if the status of the Palestinian Authority in the United Nations is elevated or changed fundamentally, this from one legal perspective would allow international law to apply to the Palestinians, namely that people who are forcibly occupied by a foreign military power have the right to forcibly resist the occupation by that power. And that sends shivers up the Israeli Defense Forces' spine and those Americans who support those Israeli Defense Forces. This this man had his arm up. He's in the shadow. The short answer is the same as the long one. Yes, and it's happening this evening. It really is. We're trying to understand. We are increasing our knowledge. We're receiving information and insight that's been hard to come by. In fact, many people even have to perhaps suspend judgment. I'm not going to accept that at face value. I'm going to go look it up and Google it to see if uh, we were being had. But it's happening this evening, I would like to thank Right on that.
1: I would have said the same thing. And, and in fact, um, our programs—just uh, speaking from the perspective of Baylor—our programs with uh, students no. in the Middle East Comment. were vitiated after 9/11. And I would like to see those re-energized. It's something that uh, we certainly did in the military—that when when officers from Egypt or from Saudi Arabia or from Kuwait would come and study in the United States. When they return, they had a different perspective that they could share. And I found the same thing with officers who spent time in the region there. Uh, To whatever degree that we can build uh, programs like this, I think we've done a great thing.
2: I remember in the months after the um, liberation of Kuwait seeing an article uh, that uh, released by the Department of Defense that some 5,000 American soldiers had converted to Islam during the time that they were stationed in Saudi Arabia. And one after the other was interviewed as to why and how. And the typical answer was, well, I served in Vietnam, I served in Granada, I served in Panama, and I I couldn't kick alcohol, I couldn't kick um, drugs, I couldn't uh, kick this, that, and the other, but, but here I've been able to do it, and I'm not gonna go back. So that 5,000 is not just a handful there. It's an astounding. Statistic, but back to your question, sir. I think if one were to walk away and say, "Well, if we were to solve the Arab-Israeli conflict, that uh, all would be well." Uh, I don't think so. I think it's the single biggest obstacle, and much would be made well that is not well, and that that's the single biggest piece of the complex puzzle. But I've been persuaded by uh, a British analyst. Whose views I shared with someone earlier today regarding the following: that even if that is solved, there will continue to be these kinds of divides or divisions or differences. Uh, On one hand, uh, Western deeply ingrained beliefs and institutions and practices, and, and that are at odds with, on the other hand, deeply ingrained beliefs, institutions, and practices on the side of those from the East, in particularly the Islamic world, and asking him for details, he said, well, for example, deeply ingrained in Westerners is the emphasis on the individual, the first person singular, I, me, us, looking out for number one. Secondly, deeply ingrained in the West is a belief in the market principles there of a seller and a buyer, et cetera, and win-lose. A situation as being fair, normal, and reflective of reality. And also on the um, Western side is, is an unvitiated uh, belief in the supremacy of uh, science and technology and research and development. And these are unshakable, uh, and they're there for centuries now, being built up and sustained and fortified over and against that or alongside that on the eastern or the Arab side are the following, not three, but five. One is at the top of the values is uh, elementary justice. Islam is a religion socially uh, from a perspective of justice. Do not commit an injustice. And if one has been committed, undo the injustice. That's the highest. Secondly is uh, the value of compassion. Uh, compassion for the orphan, for the widowed, for the maimed, for the afflicted, for the blind, for the halt. Some of it perhaps coming from the example in the life of the Prophet Muhammad himself, who was an orphan. Uh, thirdly, a notion of equity. Equity not necessarily being the same as justice, though close to it, or not necessarily the same as compassion, but equity in the sense of an usness versus we versus they. In terms of Islamic banking... It's structured in such a way that it is not abusive, if at all possible, on the part of the lender to the borrower. Uh, the lender takes an equity stake in the venture that's being underwritten so that both are at risk. Both are committed to make it work. And it's structured thusly. it, When it succeeds, it's a win-win situation, not structured in a situation where one wins or the other loses or one wins more than the other loses. More. And the fourth aspect has to do with the emphasis on the communal being supreme to the emphasis on the individual. And in layperson's terms, we're talking about the emphasis on the family, of being other-oriented, and asking yourself in moments or times of doubt whether the Almighty would be more pleased with me if I'm selfish, uh, self-centered, uh, or other-oriented, uh, a good listener looking out for the needs and legitimate concerns and interests and objectives of others apart from my own needs, interests, concerns and objectives and the fifth one is don't knock piety in other words a pious person by definition is one who's into trying to in their moments of piety please the almighty and avoid acts that would provoke the wrath of the almighty and so don't knock or make fun of or be irrelevant or irreverent towards the pious. Uh, They are pious for a reason. And the fact that five times a day are the opportunities for prayer, many Westerners, many atheists, deists, uh, sectarianists or secularists would say, that's a bit much, isn't it? That's over the top. Well, the response often from uh, the pious Muslims is, well, it's not mandatory. There's no one that's going to throw you in jail or penalize you if you don't pray five times a day. But if you do, it's seen as honorable. You've taken time, you've broken your stride, your regimen, your routine. You've gotten out of yourself and you thought about others, thought about how fortunate you are and blessed you are to be alive there. And it's also physically good for you because the act of praying is up and down, etc., and that's good on the healthy side there. So psychologically as well as physically and religiously, it all is in the the positive column or certainly it's not by definition in the negative column Uh, so these divides the three on the western side I think a valid observation of who we are as westerners in general validated through the limelight of history and the five on the Islamic side I think have also validated through the sunlight of uh, history and contemporary affairs I don't know if that helps
1: at all I have one brief append there, if I may. Uh, it's a, a survey that I'm still unpacking. Uh, but uh, the Gallup Poll mm-hmm. and Gallup International um, did a major survey. In fact, I can recommend John Esposito mm-hmm. uh, and what a billion Muslims are trying to tell us. Uh, but this uh, was just released. And in this survey, uh, across the Middle East, they, they ask uh, Muslims, would you like to have better relationships with the West? And what they found was that those who had more recently or more consistently been involved in religious activities, they were more inclined to say, yes, we would. We're ready to have better relationships with the West. They did the same survey um, here. And what they found was that people who went to church less were more willing to have better relations uh, with uh, uh, Muslims in the Middle East.
0: Is that you, Rachel? That's good, Mom.
1: Summarize that question? I can respond to the first part, and if I, if I don't address all that you, you brought up, uh, uh, then, then let me know. I would strongly advocate for you doing that. Um, uh, Baylor has an exchange program at the American University in Cairo, and um, I, I got an email from one of our students just this morning. I was getting ready to undock my computer and uh, head for the airport to come here. And uh, this young woman sent a very lengthy email to me and just said, "Uh, what has it been like for you in the last several weeks? And so she gave an account of any number of things that had transpired uh, with respect to the demonstrations. But she also said, I have been so graciously, warmly received. And that's been the account that I've gotten from every student who's gone to the American University. No one's come back and said, I wish we hadn't done that. Uh, The only students maybe had uh, a little more difficulty was a couple in which I played matchmaker, um, suggested to the guy that uh, he date this particular girl, and he said, really? And he said, I've been praying about that. It is a Baptist institution, after all. So he took that as some kind of sign, and he married her midway through his senior year. And the two of them went there as a part of their honeymoon, and they spent their spring semester. That was something of a struggle to adjust to uh, marriage uh, in Cairo, Egypt. But they love the place. And that's been the response of all the students that have had there, um, I, I would, I'd say without question, to pursue it. And you can, um, it's, it's easy enough to find bloggers uh, and write to them, uh, young Egyptians who are blogging. Uh, one of those that I saw, I happened to see an Al Jazeera program um, called The Cafe. And uh, this particular blogger was a part of a panel of about eight different people. Uh, these were all younger people. Uh, in fact, there was someone there who looked uh, like he was maybe mid-30s, and the moderator for this said, well, it looks like most of us are younger.
3: <laughs>
1: okay, so somebody's 35 is not that young. That's so far in my rearview mirror. But uh, anyway, one of the, one of the bloggers uh, there uh, had uh, acknowledged that he is behind the blog Confessions, no, Rantings, excuse me, Rantings of a Sand Monkey.
2: Of oh, a Sand Monkey, Well,
1: wow. And so I wrote him last week, and immediately got a very cordial response back saying that he would like to come to Texas and eat barbecue. <laughs> Whoa! Um, uh, but they are engaged. And you're right. I mm-hmm. was uh, um, in communication with the nurse. This is the, the is the yeah. Yeah. The is,
0: was pretty easy to communicate with them rather than this area. Right. You've sent hundreds of students to the Middle
2: East, John. Yes.
0: Negative feedback at all?
2: Um, good question. We, we sent 353 uh, high school juniors to the Arab world for uh, four to six weeks of Arabic language, in some cases homestays and uh, cultural exposures and visits to sites of historical and cultural uh, interest. Uh, the majority of them were, were women, 17 years old, 16 years old. The reason we chose juniors was so that when they came back to their communities, we ran this program in 36 American cities, is that each one would give a minimum of 20 speeches to civic and group, uh, educational church synagogues and other groups in their community uh, about their visit because there was a participant a component of the funding from the community and this was a way to uh, give it back. Secondly it was to prepare them for what it's like to be in this field because sooner rather than later and usually much sooner than later uh, people who speak non-negatively about Arabs and Muslims are accused uh, of being um, Arab lovers or uh, uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish uh, propagandists, brainwashed, etc. So how does a 16 or 17 year old person uh, fend off this? And so usually with these students, Conrad after uh, the first three or four of their lectures to these grown-ups who are three times their age, there's a Mrs. Brown or Mr. Jones who accuses them of something. A young woman, a young man you've been brainwashed. How much do they pay you to say this? and oftentimes tears well up in their eyes, et cetera, because they don't know how to handle this until around the fourth or the fifth one until they get spunk in themselves and say, listen, Mrs. Brown, I have no reason to lie to you. All I'm doing is sharing with you my exposure and experience that you helped to make possible and for which I shall ever be grateful. Mrs. Brown, I'm telling you the truth of what I experienced. Mrs. Brown, have you ever been to where I spent the last six weeks and we usually find that quite effective. And being 16, 17 years old, they are thusly empowered when they are freshmen registering at a university. And we've had many who've gone through the registration line, and uh, the uh, registrating officer says, registration officer says, well, you signed up for French or for German. And the student says, yes, but that was last April. But I've had an exposure and experience in the interim that I don't need to go into in-depth telling you about, but uh, I want to study Arabic. And if you don't have Arabic here, I'm not registering. And so quite a few parents got angry at us, saying, what did you do with my daughter? What did you do with my son? <clears throat> Some would say, though, I sent you a boy and you brought me back a man. Uh, and they'd get over it. But that would be these inevitable uh, accusations. Um, and now that we have them working uh, in the Senate and the House, all throughout the Department of Defense, in the Department of State in the intelligence community there in the journalism uh, area. We did this program and started it in 1984, which was when Ronald Reagan was still the president, and he had a youth initiative, which we didn't know about, but somebody said this program fits in with his initiative. And believe it or not, he wrote a personal letter to each and every one who won. We were sending 36 a year, and you, when you're from Kalispell, uh, Montana, and you get a, pres- a letter from the President of the United States, congratulations, uh, Mr. Jones, for winning the Malcolm Kerr Scholarship in Arab and Islamic Studies. That's, that's big stuff. And it was uh, carried on under George H.W. Bush and carried on during the Clinton administration. The, the George W. Bush uh, stopped its endorsement of that particular program. But 353 was a lot. Of the 353, only two backed out of the program. Mind you, we were sending them to the region during the Iran-Iraq War, which lasted from September 1980 to August 18, 1988. And when we bombed Libya during that time, when we bombed Lebanon during that time, the war seemed like it would never end. Only two parents called and said, you're not taking my daughter or son. Interestingly enough, the parents of one were, were Turkish. And they said, we, we left that region, or our grandparents left that region for a good reason. And we're not having our grandchildren go back. And the other one was the Lebanese family. It said as much the same thing, but uh, 353 did go, and they're playing extraordinary roles in various walks of life. Another program was 55 uh, journalists, young journalists, and we're working uh, with Chad Stebbins and Dr. Gabera on this conversationally now to explore the possibilities of of allowing one of the outstanding graduates of the mass communications and journalism program here uh, to go to the United Arab Emirates, where we have a program where they can work for three and a half months uh, uh, on the the Gulf News newspaper there, uh, getting over Arab culture shock, Muslim culture shock, sharing their technology and education with the local uh, journalists and editors and layout and design people there getting a byline and um, having their feet on the ground and with a byline before they even began their career in the United States. So 53 of those. One of the first ones was from the Columbia University School of Journalism here in Missouri, right? Right. Columbia, yes. And School, his, School. Yeah, his name is Dick Dowdy, Doughty, D-O-U-G-H-T-Y. And anybody who knows about uh, Eastern Arabia history, the most famous of the Arabists of the 19th century was uh, Charles Doughty, Charles M. Doughty, uh, in the library here, they bound to have a copy of his book called uh, Wanderings in Arabia, or Arabia Deserter. Yes. He had the exact same name. He is the deputy editor, and, and has been so now for 15 years, of Aramco World. Now, Aramco World is a dream publication for anybody who's into journalism, or photojournalism, to work with. Its quality is as, every bit as good as National Geographic. Uh, but he started with uh, the university here. We put him in Egypt for three and a half months on a weekly newspaper called Cairo Today, which has since folded, but he's hardly folded. He's not even been stapled or spindled. There, he's doing fine.
1: I'd add that uh, Dick Dowdy wrote one of the best books I've uh, yes. read on right. the Arab-Israeli conflict yep. uh, titled uh, Gaza Legacy of Occupation. He immersed himself as a journalist in the area. Yep. The superb. Yep.
0: I remind Dr. Anthony that... Uh, University of Missouri was the first school to develop a degree in journalism. Yeah. So two more questions. Mm -hmm. We'll start with you and finish with Dr. Wyman. Okay, please.
2: Greater identification uh, uh, among Egyptians with the African roots and surroundings than than Iraq? Not, not more so than like, having a better view because of yeah. geographical and cultural. Yeah, good point. Uh, as far as making decisions for the region that they are in, I, my answer would be yes rooted in geography first and foremost because it's part of Africa. Iraq is not. And uh, secondly, increasing uh, archaeological studies, anthropological studies, sociological studies have uh, proven uh, with increasing authentication uh, the, the, the African rootedness of humanity. Uh, my wife has, has heard me shriek three or four times around two or three in the morning uh, as I watched this four-hour documentary produced by University of California at Berkeley, young anthropologist, he's about 40, and maybe some of you have seen it. it's called The Story of Humankind there, and it, it takes from Southwest Africa in the click sound from the, the voice that still exists to this day, uh, going for the migrations to East Africa, out into Arabia, and then north from Arabia, uh, both taking a hook to the right, Hairpin turn uh, into South Asia, Southeast Asia, Australia, another one straight up to Central Asia, and then over to Siberia and elsewhere, and the last one, the most recent one, over to Western Europe. And the conclusion of it is that we are all Africans. And um, being from the South and never cottoning at all to any of the segregationist ethos of my birth, um, I've long been um, uh, a fighter against uh, any form of discrimination based on pigmentation or skin color as such, and so usually she hears me screaming and cheering at 2 or uh, 3 in the morning and runs up to ask me what's wrong and I say, nothing's wrong, everything's right. We are all Africans there. (laughs) So Egypt has that connection that Iraq does not. And if you look at the map, what do you call it, tectonic plates, right? I mean, just look at the map in terms of how uh, uh, Africa and Arabia were linked. Uh, and joined at the southern end of the Red Sea, what is known as the Gulf of Aden or the Babel-Mandeb. And to this day, we don't have a map here, but I bet in most rooms here, except for the ones that have globes, the maps are up and down and left and right, (laughs) as though the world is up and down and left and right. It's not. But if you wanted to understand the Middle East anthropologically, you tilt it uh, on its side, and there's this human swath from what is South Asia or Indian Pakistan, straight through Oman, straight through eastern Yemen, straight through Western, southwestern Yemen, straight through over into Uganda and, and uh, Kenya and Ethiopia and uh, uh, Eritrea. And the skin pigmentation, the bone structure, the texture of the, of the hair will be more similar than dissimilar along that route because of the winds, because of the t- tides, because of the currents, because of the human flow throughout history. Of these two peoples intermixing with each other. Not so much the Iraqis, but those from Africa, yes. Dr. Wyman?
1: A great question. And uh, in fact, the Brotherhood is all over the map. Um, The Brotherhood, as you know, established its own party, the Freedom and Justice Party, in May and have something like 9,000 members in the initial cadre of this party. One of the things that intrigued me about it was that uh, they adopted a party platform that on the question of religion precisely mirrored the interim constitution that's been put in place, which precisely follow the wording of the 2007 uh, Constitution, which followed that, which preceded uh, uh, the Constitution that preceded that. And the language was that it it says first, Islam is the religion of the state. Then it says the official language is Arabic. And then with respect to legislation, it says uh, that the principles of the Sharia will be the primary source for legislation. And I, I, I was intrigued by that linkage that they would, they would say that. And it looks like they want to operate in something that's been in place in Egypt uh, literally for years with respect to articulating the way they want to, art, uh, um, they want to legislate. And uh, Zawahiri and others have responded to that to say that it's simply an abomination. It has to be the Sharia period. The legislation is taken from the Sharia the Brotherhood has moved well away from that. But the Brotherhood itself appears to be undergoing significant change. When I read, um, and by change, I don't mean that as a, that it's monolithic and that the whole group is changing. But, in fact, um, one of the candidates for the president uh, is a physician. He's head of the Physicians' Union in Egypt. Yep. He's 59 years old, a fellow named uh, Dr. Abdul Fatou, mm-hmm. and uh, okay. has been... Uh, he was ousted, in fact, from the Brotherhood for saying this, But he, after uh, doing this, because he said, I want to run as an independent candidate. And the general guide said, no, if you're going to run, I mean, if you're going to be a part of the Brotherhood, you have to be in our party. But he stepped out of it, and it's gotten the acclaim of a number of younger Egyptians, both secular and who would self-identify as Muslim. And in his particular party platform, he said, um, uh, women shouldn't have to veil if they don't want to. Uh, alcohol should be permitted in the kingdom and Egypt actually produces a pretty good beer, Stella, <laughs> uh, which is uh, uh, the domestic variety is uh, turpentine uh, but the export variety of it is served in the hotels and it's really good, so I hear. <laughs> so um, he's gone on from there to say that women and, uh, and Christians should be allowed uh, senior offices In the country, they should be allowed to run for president if they wish. But he's not the only breakaway from the Brotherhood. And, in fact, there are those who have remained in the Brotherhood who have argued against what they see as an older generation. And I think uh, your student, Conrad, left to ask a question earlier. should appreciate this. But there was a young fellow who was a computer scientist uh, who was in the Brotherhood, and he ran the website called Equanophobia. Uh, Designed to try to counter the fears that the people have of the Ikhwan, the Brotherhood. And he finally said, These guys are too old. I have to do something else. And he gave this particular interview over Skype. And I thought it captures something of the technological revolution that's, that's occurred there. Uh, but the Brotherhood itself is under extraordinary pressure to be able to um, try to accommodate what, what they see unfolding. It's not all sweetness and light. Uh, just last week, the Turkish uh, prime minister, um, Erdogan, was there. He was met at the airport um, with an avalanche of applause. Uh, the Brotherhood was there to say, we're glad to have you, um, and uh, we'd like to see a caliphate that involves Egypt and, um, and Turkey. Erdogan spoke, and a number of Egyptians, both in and out of the Brotherhood, have said, we like the Turkish model. Others have said, we don't like the Turkish model. We need to chart our own independent secular course. But um, in a speech that was designed to please none of the older generation of the Brotherhood, Erdogan said, uh, to establish a secular state is not to establish irreligion in Egypt. Uh, He said, I have the same uh, instance in Turkey. He said, uh, we have a secular government, but I'm very much a religious person. I can't impose that on others. Mm-hmm. And he went on to say that the government should stand in the same distance, at the same distance from other groups, uh, other ethnic groups, or uh, religious confessional groups, the old millet system of Turkey. Um, and the, uh, uh, one of the members of the Freedom and Justice Party immediately, it was uh, uh, Esam uh, Etienne, said, uh, Erdogan doesn't speak for us. We'll, we'll chart our own course. But it was interesting to follow through the kind of conversations, and maybe shouting matches too, that that generated, uh, that the Brotherhood isn't monolithic, that people are thinking in ways uh, very much outside the box. And one of the most promising things that I've seen to come out of that is uh, a young Brotherhood member who's since been booted, only because he said this. Um, He wanted um, to see a new kind of movement that could embrace secularists. His name is Islam uh, uh, Lutfi. And he, uh, he's, he was there at the, uh, at, at the outset of the, of the uh, demonstrations in Tahrir, and they have decided together to establish a movement called the Islamic Current. And the word for current there is a word that means uh, literally a stream, a flow. And he said, our party is one that would have an Islamic framework, but there will be no discrimination for other religious faiths. And in this party, he's inclu- including those who self-identify as uh, secularist. Well, this fellow, 33 years old, happens to be an attorney in Egypt, and he's a human rights lawyer. So what's mm-hmm. unfolded here is a dynamic and vigorous conversation about the kind of government that will be established, and the Brotherhood is not absent from it. There are those in it and those out of it who are a part of that.
2: Mm-hmm. I met the um, gentleman, the number three in the Brotherhood that Dr. Long made reference to, and I had three hours with him one-on-one, 19, 2008. Uh, I had to wait two and a half hours to uh, to meet with him. Uh, he is a medical doctor and the head of the medical profession union. And the, the line of people waiting to see this person, a uh, workaholic would be the appropriate name for him, uh, was that long that um, I deferred to... To, he, he wanted me to come in early, and I said, no, these are your people. And I waited for two hours and a half, and at the end, he said, now, we have the rest of the afternoon together. And he explained why he was inclined to run as an independent. There, He said, because this is the way that Mubarak's government has held on to power as long as they have. They have those who are officially with the party, and then there are all of these independents who anybody who knows them are also really with the party. But they're stacking, they're padding their numbers in the parliament to argument their influence. And so he said what's good for the goose is good for the gander, so to speak, there, and, and I will do the same thing. But his trying to do it, his fellow members of the party said that this is wrong. His rebuttal to that is that we have to think out of the box here, that if people run for a party and win for a party, they are bound and beholden uh, to the party and to those who elected them knowing that they have represented the party to uphold the principles, virtues, ideals, and objectives of the party. And his view is that if you run as an independent, you can be independent, you can let the best idea win. You're not gonna be a slave necessarily to the party platform, or to those who elected you if it's the wrong course of action, or for the party hierarchy in order for you to move up in the, in the party leadership there. So uh, it's made me rethink my ideas Two, about uh, uh, a country that has political parties, is it because it has political parties more advanced, more progressive, more modern, more developed than a country without political parties? Um, I'm not so sure as I once was. Um, I've been an election observer in Yemen for uh, all of its parliamentary and national presidential elections. I've been an official observer for all of them. And I've watched the degree of, of freedom and robustness in clearness and transparency and openness of those elections. Nothing like it I've ever ever seen anywhere else in the Eastern Arab world. They do have parties, and I think uh, uh, Conrad, you were making reference earlier today about how religious parties in Yemen work side by side with Marxist-Leninist parties. I don't know anywhere in the world where you would have a Marxist-Leninist sitting right next to a tribal leader or a religious leader, both members, fellow members of a cabinet, but serving a higher cause than their ideological biases. So that would be Yemen at one extreme. And Oman is another one. And Oman just gets rightful credit for f- helping to free the remaining two hikers uh, that strayed into Iran in the last 24 hours. Oman is dead set against political parties for the reason I mentioned. We, we, we want good people to represent uh, their constituents. We don't want them to be hidebound in advance by a party platform or by the parties written ideology. Um, and I'm intrigued by that, too. Uh, I'm finding that uh, it's more difficult for me to rebut that than it was earlier when I hadn't thought it through. I think voting for a good person, and, and the fact that the good person is a good person warms my heart more than whether she or he is left or right or Republican or Democrat or wears a party label. So it, it's, it's confused me nicely to listen to these kinds of debates. Made me rethink some of my uh, stronger convictions
0: and with that my dear friends i want to thank you for staying with us this long these gentlemen have been with us for two and a half hours and we need to give them a robust round of applause and thank you for coming <clears throat>